Hello, good evening. I ran into uh, Warren briefly this afternoon, and he joked that he would use me in an illustration. Um, he little did he know that I would be illustrating myself, and he might have a whole lot more material than he wanted if he wanted an <laughs> illustration. My name is Nathan Reeve, and I am privileged to fellowship with the saints at Fairhaven Bible Chapel in San Leandro. I'm up here to glorify God by testifying to his persistent, gentle, and tender pursuit of me. I want to share three instances where he, well, not all, in order, where he saved me, is one. Second, where I had doubts and he answered them. And the third, where I was getting it, and maybe still am getting it, backwards. Very backwards. And he is flipping that around for me. If you find yourself in any of these stages, I hope this help, if helps. If not, know that the same God that is pursuing me is pursuing you and loves you too much to leave you where you are, wants you to come closer. On Tuesday night, we heard about a character in a story identified solely by the rich man. And I was thinking about my story without Christ, and I think it very well, be, would, very well might be that of the entrepreneurial man. Now, that's a big, fancy word to say that I'll buy and sell anything I can as long as I come out ahead. So as a kid, we'd find golf balls. My, parent, my grandparents lived near a golf course. We'd find them. I'd go try to resell them. I'd buy things and split them up and try to resell them, including Tic Tacs that come and, you know, you thought they couldn't get smaller. I'd split those apart and sell them. <laughs> but that doesn't sound maybe very bad. There's nothing necessarily wrong with buying and selling. If you knew the heart of the matter, many of you don't know me. Those of you that know me, Generally, my reputation is that I'm a nice guy. Those of you who know me very well, which is only maybe a very few of you, would know that there is some manipulation involved. And that in wheeling and dealing and buying and selling, I'm not ignorant of the fact that you can wheel and deal with emotions and with the way you treat people and the way you want them to treat you back and trying to come out ahead. And so if your goal is to look good in front of people, then it makes sense to be nice to them. People generally like nice people. So it might be the manipulative entrepreneurial man. But now we're going to see what God has done because it doesn't really matter what I have done, it matters what God has done. And so I got saved after four years of believing that I was saved. There had been a situation with uh, my oldest sister and my younger brother in which it was relationally advantageous for me to be saved. So I had proclaimed confidently that I had been saved. My brother, who had been looking for advice, then went, left both of us and talked to my dad. Smart man. For some reason, I took that, and I assumed after that point that I was saved because of what I had said. It wasn't until about four years later when a visiting preacher, I don't recall his name, spoke a message in a fairly unassuming place. We were temporarily out of our chapel in somebody's backyard. And he asked a few questions. He talked about genuine Christianity and he asked a few questions about what does it mean to be genuine. And I don't even remember what the questions were, but they got to me. They made me look at my life and ask the question, am I genuine? And at some point it finally clicked that, wait a second, that little thing back years ago was not surrender to Jesus Christ. That was just pride and coming out ahead. 
At which point I became immediately very, very afraid because I'd been in church since about nine months before I was born. And I'd heard the gospel many times. And I knew that if you didn't know Jesus, if you were not saved, you went to hell if you died. I also knew that I didn't just have to be careful on the way home in case a car hit me. I know that Jesus could come back at any time, and I had no control over that. And I knew exactly where I would be should that happen that night. A few hours later, I was talking to my dad, and we prayed, and I surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ as best I knew how, because I didn't want to go to hell. So God didn't let me stay in my presumed salvation, but let me know that I needed to be actually saved. Well, then he didn't let me stay in my simply understanding that, oh, now I have fire insurance. I won't go to hell. That was priority one for me. But that there's more. And so I grew. But before I leave that part, I just want to maybe mention that if you know church kids, missionary kids, my parents were missionaries. I got saved in Nicaragua. Missionary kids, church kids, preachers kids, I don't care whose kids. Don't assume, ask the questions. If you get to know them, and, and, and pay attention, you have to love them because they will know the right answers. So if you give them easy questions, they'll give you the right answer right back at you. So get to know them, keep asking questions. If you're somebody who grew up in the church, maybe you made a profession at a young age, and I, I don't want to discredit that, I don't want to cast doubt where doubt doesn't need to be, but make sure you know the gospel. Make sure you know why, yes, Jesus died for my sins. You've probably heard that, you could say it. But how does that work? If you don't know the meaning of John 3.16 that was spoken on Tuesday night, maybe look into that. If you're not sure about what Romans 10.9-10 means, look into that. And last thing on that, don't miss what happened. In one sense, okay, somebody who thought he, got, he was saved became saved. I was not very old. I was about 10. I didn't have a whole rap sheet of all these terrible things, but I did have this. I had an arrogant heart that had sat for four years assuming that I was saved, even after hearing teaching on teaching on teaching. And God changed that heart. And so I may not have an exciting testimony in that regard, but it's a work of the God changing the hardest substance known to man, which is the arrogant human heart. Moving on, went to high school. Uh, in high school, I had a, one, several wonderful teachers. We went to an international school. We were in Kazakhstan at that point. We didn't speak Russian very well, so we went to an international school. They spoke English. Most of the teachers were missionaries themselves. Their job was to come and teach us, and I'm grateful for each one of them. One of them in particular uh, tried to get us ready for college. Well, several of them did, but in this class, he asked us a couple. He, would, he liked to think of questions and just throw, us, throw the questions at us to see how we would answer, questions that we might face in college. So he asked various questions, and they didn't bother me much. I had my answer, and um, I moved on. I graduated. I went to, came back to the United States, uh, started school at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. There's several Cal Poly people here. I met some today. And not even necessarily, I didn't have a class that the teacher just hammered and threw all these lies at me. It wasn't even that, but for some reason, shortly after starting, the question came of, what if everything... I had ever been taught about God was wrong. And internally, I'd, I'd been taught well enough that it all made sense. If you assume the Bible is true, everything flows from there, the reasons why we do what we do, like that's a clean package, that's good. But what if for some reason the Bible's not true and all of that goes away? 
And the answer of, well, you know, the, the Bible says that the Bible is true doesn't work because you're evaluating the Bible. It was wholesale doubt, and it got me to dig deeper. Got me to figure out, so why do we believe what we believe? I started looking at other options and really quickly found there's not much there. Probably the, the two reasons that kind of summed it up that, that the Lord gave me, that anchored me back, was one, that I had a hunger for something much more than anything this world could provide. Making the world better for my children and their children was not important if all their point was to make it better for their children. Like that, that, I don't know. It's inside the system and it, doesn't, it didn't work for me. And uh, a quote from C.S. Lewis, roughly butchered, goes like this that the presence of hunger in a man does not prove the existence of bread, but it proves the existence of something like bread, that man was made for something like bread to satisfy him. So knowing that there was a hunger I had that would not be satisfied by anything in this world, well, there has to be something bigger. And then the second part was just looking at the details of God's creation, and it's great to talk about that here. Whether you go down in the microscope level or you go up into the telescopic level, the more we learn, the more we find there's just designed, designed, designed detail that really to think about the odds of things work, working out the way they do becomes ridiculous. So I took the Bible as true and therefore all that back in. So it helped anchor me to my faith. Now it happened a couple more times. In fact, it persisted through a couple years on and off. And after the first two times that maybe were productive per se, they weren't productive anymore. They became a trap from the enemy of what if, what if it's really not true? What if you're missing out? You've been duped because you just bought it wholesale. And somehow I would forget that I had already gone through that and I already had what God had shown me. And it would throw me for a loop every time. Sometimes it'd be a week. And it's kind of difficult because when you're doubting the existence of God and you're being intellectually honest, you can't exactly ask him for help because you're not sure if he exists. And it's several years later, it finally it was actually at the Galilee program, I'm going to give a little bit on that, but where I realized that I had to now, by faith, ask God for help, that when that thought came in of maybe you're missing it all, to say, no, wait, we went there. And it's miserable. And it's miserable to be four days, five days, without being able to have fellowship with God and to know the right answers, but really just be confused inside. And I had to raise it by faith. I have to say, Lord, you've shown me what you've shown me, and, and next time this comes, help me to take it to you and say, Lord, here's the thought again, but we've already been through this. Can we not do that again? The next time it came up, by his grace, I did that. And the thought hasn't really come in that form again. So if... You know someone who's doubting. Jude 22 says, be merciful to those who doubt. Especially if it's somebody who grew up in the Christian church. They're, you're supposed to know everything, and so you don't really want to talk about it with that many people because you're not supposed to be there. If you're doubting, look into God's word. Evaluate it honestly. Many people have evaluated it honestly and found that God's word is true. But also, if you've done that, don't let it become a trap that just locks you down and debilitates you, takes you out of action. It's a trap. Don't fall for it. Um, a quick aside on the Galilee program, and I'm running out of time, but it's not a cult. It's not 
a school for elite super Christians, because then like three quarters of us would have to drop out. Um, if anything, maybe we could call it remedial training for sinners saved by grace who are beginning to wonder if there's more to the Christian walk than what they're doing today. Specifically targeted at ages 20 to 35, roughly. But if you can't, it's three weeks in the summer in Louisiana. But if you can't do that, I just want to kind of expose some gems we have among us because, I don't know, like 75% of Galilee staff are here. And so um, if you want to know about having coffee or tea, if that's your preference, with Jesus, um, I'd encourage you to talk to Scott DeGroff. If you want to have some imagery of what the throne room of God might possibly look like when we pray to him, ask Steve Price right here in the front. If you ever wondered or you didn't know that taking what somebody offers you to eat can be a very important part of discipleship, ask Nathan Bramson. If you're tired of fighting with sin and confessing sin and, and you've gotten confused because you've sinned so many times, you're not sure it counts anymore or what the point is, and you don't feel like you've lived freely with God, ask my dad, David Reeve. These are all things I learned at the Galilee program. I'd encourage you to consider it if that's what you're looking for. Um, finally, summarizing the last part. So saved, doubts, God kept pursuing me, getting it backwards. I graduated from college, came back to the Bay Area, uh, back to Fairhaven, and um, man, the things that were about to happen, it was going to be great. You weren't going to believe how God, I was going to rock that assembly and things were going to happen and you can laugh at my envisionings or you can weep at the presumed self-importance at the core of it all. I threw myself into ministry because that looks good. That's relational capital in the Christian church. It looks good. Um, said yes to a whole bunch of things. Served here, there. And the Lord in his mercy led me to burnout where I'd be going from one thing to another and wondering, I do not want to go to the next thing. And this wasn't even like major spiritual things. This is like hanging out with people. I'm like, I don't want to hang out with people anymore. But like, I feel like it's a good thing to hang out with people because I'm a good person. And so if I hang out with people, that's a good thing. That's ministry, right? Right. And I started questioning at some point, why am I so tired? Well, it's because I say yes to too many things. Why do I say yes to too many things? Well, because I don't like saying no, right? Well, why don't you like saying no? Well, because it's ministry. You have to do ministry. It's for God. And then, but like, are you really effectively doing ministry? Or why do you feel like you have to say yes to all these things? And then I realized, because I don't want to look bad. If I say no to something, I might look bad. That's a risk. I don't want to do that. Why? Because I was at the center of it. That I was going to do all these things. God started showing me that, yeah, it's not, it's not Nathan Reeve. He's not going to save anybody. He can't even change himself. God has to do it. He also started showing me that at some point, if, if I'm not walking with Christ and in fellowship with him, then likely I won't be able to share Christ very well with others. An artist said you can't feed the crowd if you don't feed yourself. And um, at that point, it would be more advantageous to somebody asking me to be involved in something to tell them no. If I'm not going to walk in there walking with God because I've been too busy, and by the way, Nate has a great chapter in his book about being busy and how busy is too busy. If you can't pray, you can't listen to the Holy Spirit, you're probably too busy. No, I, I can't say I've figured that out yet. You can ask um, Kevin Cooper, who's mentoring and discipling me, and I'm still very busy. But slowly seeing God, looking to God instead of looking to me, closing it with, 
my ideas of discipleship, of loving people, I ask God, you know, Lord, help me disciple people, help me love people. And kind of after things were happening and I kind of looked back and realized, oh, wow, God was answering that prayer. Just didn't look at all like what I had in mind because I had in mind as my kingdom growing and me looking good. And he was doing the work and it was apart from me. And I got to be involved, I got to see it, but he was doing the work. In fact, most of the, the biggest breakthroughs in those things happened like I had hardly anything to do with it. I'm just like watching like, oh, wow. Wow, look at what God is doing. It's not grandiose. It's simple, quiet obedience of a changed heart. I can't change a heart. Only God can. Finally, I'd like to close with a brief thought about obedience. One of the things that I knew that I was not obeying God in it was in sharing the gospel. I wanted, you know, all these cities to get saved. Somehow, Lord, magically, you know, I'm, I'm riding on public transportation. I look out in the hills and see the city of Oakland, like, Lord, save Oakland. And then at one point, he, like, made me look around inside the car, and I'm like, and he said, you know, well, what about people, like, right next to you? I go, oh, no, wait, like, that might be uncomfortable. But like, Lord, save Oakland. Well, in that, part of the way he answered that was actually through another way where I didn't think I was being disobedient, but I was. It was in the matter of finances. I told the Lord that I would give him a certain portion of the finances, and in my head, I'd given it to him. Um, but I hadn't actually, like, released it. But I hadn't spent it, so, like, I wasn't stealing, so I thought, but I hadn't also, hadn't yet released it. Well, I figured, okay, I needed, the Lord said, you need to obey, you need to release it. And then I started, you know, calculating, oh, but if I give what I said I'd give, then I only have this much left. And then, so then it, all of a sudden, the question became, of, well, where, are, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in God like you say, or are you trusting in your wealth? And what really is the currency of heaven? Your wheeling and dealing, all this stuff, what's really going to stay? And so I started releasing the things that needed to be released to this thing and that thing. But because of that, thinking of that question of realizing, wait, like, this is all, this is just tools that hopefully God uses. That's the best thing that can happen. And so might as well get it off my plate as soon as I can. And so then all of a sudden when talking to people and you're looking at them and you're thinking about sharing the gospel and it's kind of uncomfortable, but like all, you've already been to through the point where what does it matter? I've already, I'm giving money away because I think God's greater. So what does it matter if I lose relational capital by being awkward? Plus, I'm not really changing them, so all I have to do is tell them. And God has begun to change me where I'm more willing to share the gospel and obey that way. And so what I'm seeing now, that I was getting it backwards, I was trying to see, you know, fireworks and a big parade, and it's in small, simple steps of obedience today. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but today I know this. Today I know that I need to spend more time abiding with Christ. Today I know that I need to not to be focused on Christ so that I see what he wants and not what I want. The hardest part about serving God now is, is putting to death the flesh because it hurts. And you say, no, that's, that's worthless. We're not going to listen to you. So through all that, God has continued to pursue me. He's continued to highlight things that are wrong, to bring them up so that we can deal with them and move forward. And so it's by his grace that I am where I am and by his grace that he will continue to do this because he promised it until the day when Christ comes back and we become like him because we will see him as he is. So all glory be to God.